Welcome to Can I Get a Retake, where we explore the accomplishments of our innovative community. Each month, we speak with one of Great River Learning's higher ed instructors and authors. Together, we discuss trends in education, areas of study, and a variety of teaching styles and philosophies. My name is Michaela, your marketing coordinator. My name is Michelle, your web design supervisor. And this is Great River Learning's Can Can I I Get get a a Retake? Today on Can I Get a Retake, we are speaking with historians Diane Margoff and Kristen Heinemann. Both are teaching faculty in the History Department at Colorado State University. Diane is a professor of history at CSU with a specialty in early modern European history. She earned her undergrad degree in history from Pomona College, where she graduated magna cum laude before obtaining her master's and PhD from Yale University. Now at CSU, Diane serves as chair of the College of Liberal Arts Curriculum Committee and as the college's representative to the University Curriculum Committee. Kristen graduated summa cum laude with an undergraduate degree in history from the University of New Mexico. She went on to receive her PhD from the University of Newcastle in Australia. She is currently an associate teaching professor at Colorado State University, concentrating in Greek and Roman history, particularly the history of women and religion in the classical world. Most importantly, but we are biased, Diane and Kristen combined their expertise to author Western Civilization from Antiquity to the Age of Expansion, an online textbook and course materials published by Great River Learning. Continue listening to hear more about their research specialties and interests. Thank you for joining us, Diane and Kristen. Welcome to the pod. The title of our podcast is Can I Get a Retake? So I have to ask if you guys have ever been asked by students, can I get a retake? <laughs> <laughs> On more than one occasion, yep. Oh, yes. <laughs> Just to jump in, can you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds? You could go back and forth, but also how you guys started working together and kind of what prompted this co-author situation? So I read that question on your um, list of questions to prepare. And like a good historian, I did research. I went back (laughs) into my email archives and I found an email from October, 2014 from uh, Michelle Smith, who identified herself as a senior acquisitions editor, um, was going to be visiting the CSU campus and was curious to talk to me about the Western Civ class I teach, the textbook I use, the possibility of working on a textbook that would be digital through her company. And so for me, that's where it started. Um, We set up a meeting, we met, we talked. And um, I think one of the first questions I asked her was, could I work with a co-author? Because I thought immediately of Kristen, whose office is right next to mine. And I knew that we both taught Western Civ. We both taught the pre-modern Western Civ survey here at CSU. And I thought it would be great to work with someone whose field of expertise spans the ancient part of that class, which is, I mean, I know just enough to be dangerous, but, um, and enough to teach it legitimately, but obviously I do not have her level of expertise. So from the outset, I thought it'd be great to work with someone else. And she was the person I thought of. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Back in the email archives of 2014. <laughs> That's right. Such historians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I had always kind of thought 
um, you know, that I wanted, it's so much easier teaching from your own publication I found, and we can get into that a little bit later on. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was just such a perfect sort of marriage between Diane's specialization and mine, because um, I'm far more comfortable with the antiquity side of things. And again, probably just enough to be dangerous once we get past sort of the collapse of the Roman Empire. Um, so yeah, our, our, our expertise kind of dovetailed perfectly um, to sort of split it quite evenly. Uh, um, I get the first half and she took the second half of the material. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, it, it made sense because we were the only ones, I still think we are the only ones that teach the pre-modern Western Civ in our department. Um, and it just so happens that, that we both kind of teach either side of it or specialize in either side of it. Um, and so, yeah, when Diane asked me, I was like, I am more than happy to, because we, I had some, several issues with other textbooks and I had tried several of them and none of them, none of them fit particularly well. There's good things and bad things about all of them. Um, but this was a, a good opportunity to kind of make my class a little bit more, um, my own, I suppose. I wrote down Kristen ancient on my notes <laughs> and I only I just wanted to come back um so I mean our next thing that we really wanted to get into was what each of your specialties is if you could tell us more about yeah like what what gets you going what you enjoy about the history if you have any research interests that um you dive into at the college that'd be great so I guess it Kristen ancient if you want to go sure. um yeah so I uh I actually kind of came to the classics classics is the study of Greek and Roman history literature language and culture um I kind of came at it sort of a roundabout way I had been studying Spanish since a kid and then in college uh, I had been taking Spanish again, but then something it didn't work with my schedule or something. And so sort of like as a lark, I just took a Latin class because I was like, oh, it must be like Spanish. It must be easy like Spanish. Is. <laughs> I was mistaken. <laughs> um, but I really, I really fell in love with it. And I actually started studying uh, Roman history through Latin. Um, and uh, I just got really into it. I, I really appreciated how it was just a much different approach um, learning that language, whereas, you know, Spanish is more like, donde esta el baño? <laughs> and Latin is more like, the blood of tyrants will fill the streets. And <laughs> uh, it was just uh, very, I, I found a lot of, I don't know, it was just this different approach to how people think and talk and speak. And I just really got very much into it. Um, and so I, I kind of, started my history path down the ancient Greek and, and Roman side. Um, and then through my studies and through my PhD, I started really focusing, again, something we'll be getting into is uh, more marginalized voices. So particularly women, I think Diane and I, one of the things that we have in common is, uh, I think as female historians, we tend to really try and highlight uh, the female experience throughout history. So um, one of the ways in antiquity that that is really highlighted is through religion. And so I, a lot of my interests um, are sort of the intersection between Greek and Roman history and women and religion, um, which uh, is what a lot of my 
my research is in. Uh, and originally I was doing mostly Greek stuff. And then since teaching, um, I was originally hired at CSU to teach mostly Greek classes. Uh, and then an opportunity to teach more Roman classes came up and I was like, I would love to. And so I kind of had to hit the books again to refresh some of my Roman history and I fell in love with it all over again. And so now I'm actually more um, some of my research interests are now in kind of Roman military history, which I never in a million years would have <laughs> guessed I would have found myself there. But um, I think because of some of the video games that are out nowadays, my students know a bit more than I do. So I was like, oh, gosh, I need to I need to know what a, what a Mortafino helmet is and all this different stuff. So um, my students have actually really uh, encouraged me to sort of broaden my scope of, of interests and stuff, which is, which you know. That's the best part about teaching is it's just, you never stop learning yourself, which is great. There has been an interesting resurgence in Roman history. I don't, it, it never died, but even on Reddit, there's multiple subreddits that are just dedicated oh, yeah. really niche examples of, of Roman architecture, Roman history, Roman military history. So it's kind of cool to see. Hollywood, I think has really sort of greased the skids for that. They, I think a lot of students come through more popular media back to the histories of it, which is great. Diane, do you want to tell us a little bit about your specialization after post-ancient? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sure. Um, so um, I've always been interested in European history, um, especially in the medieval and early modern periods. So roughly between the 16th and the 18th century. Um, and so I've always been interested in the Renaissance, um, the religious reform movements of the 16th century, the Protestant and Catholic reformations and so on. Uh, when I went to graduate school, I thought that I would specialize in English history for that period, but I ended up crossing the channel and specializing in French history instead. Um, and so part of my research interest is in that early modern period specifically for France. Um, when I got my job here at CSU, um, I was hired to be the early modernist. And so as Kristen referred to, what you study and what you teach tends to be an inverted pyramid, right? You study this, but you teach far more broadly than that. And teaching the first half of the Western Civ Survey, of course, takes me from antiquity up to about the, the 16th century. Um, I knew a little bit about, and I, I sort of felt comfortable teaching a little bit about ancient Greece and Rome because the Renaissance is very much about a revival of interest in and attributing new value to that chunk of, of history. Um, but of course, I don't teach it like a Renaissance humanist. I teach it like a, a historian who, like <laughs> Kristen, encounters students who are very interested in some of the more um, the areas I don't know very well and, and whose interests and questions prompt me to think about what new things I need to incorporate into my lectures. Um, so my research interests and publications have been mostly more situated in the history of France and the Reformation, um, but teaching courses, upper division courses on the Renaissance, on the Age of Enlightenment, and of course the Western Civ Survey um, really makes me aware of how much there is and how much um, there is always new stuff to learn, new stuff to learn to teach, because learning something for your own, you know, your own interest or for a project is not the same thing as learning something that you need to be able to present to students or that might inform, you know, an, an essay question, a paper topic, um, a primary source selection. 
so yeah, that's that's kind of where my research interests um, intersect with my teaching. And I totally agree with Kristen. My interests about religion and politics have strongly intersected with gender because one of the most important directions in my field of history in the past 30 or 40 years has been incorporating people whose voices don't ordinarily get heard and giving more attention to the role of women, whether they're outstanding individuals or whether it's women as a group, how they are perceived in culture and how they sometimes push back against those assumptions. When it comes to bringing those marginalized voices to life, what tools do you have to do in order to, to find that information? Um, What's how, how are you able to incorporate that into your lectures and into your title? That's a great question. Um, and like Diane, our, my field is the same. The last 30 or 40 years has had a huge push to incorporate um, race, class, and gender. Um, a lot of that, I think, is, is really the diversity of the field itself. More female historians um, are coming in <clears throat> or um, there's just a, a great deal more female historians than there have been in the past. And so the interest, I think, of, of um, flushing out the female experience sometimes starts with women, um, women historians. Um, and for classics, it's hard because our our body of evidence is is so small. And sometimes we do get amazing finds of, you know, some archaeological finds or, oh, this text that hasn't been um, you know, that's been lost for centuries. Uh, so sometimes there are new pieces of information, but uh, for my field particularly, I think it's more of reading the old information, the, the original or the available um, evidence just with a new lens um, because the vast majority of, of ancient evidence is written by men for men. Uh, women don't really get a lot of a voice. Um, and so it's kind of reading in between the lines. A lot of it is seeing when women are not incorporated and that actually tells us a great deal. Um, kind of like Sherlock Holmes and the, the silent dog in the nighttime. I can't remember what that title was where, never mind, yeah. please. Yeah. The dog edit. that didn't bark. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, there it is. Um, wow, uh, edit that. <laughs> Um, but reading the the original material with this new lens of um, just highlighting when when there is a passing mention of a woman or um, you know men talking about what their wives ought to be doing uh, and even though sometimes it is very uh, chauvinistic and frankly misogynist that does tell us a, again a great deal about um, the experience of women. Um, so I think, yeah, using a different lens and, and just looking for it, whereas many historians, you know, a century or so ago just didn't really care to look for it, uh, the majority of them. And so um, just reading old material in new ways, I think, is one of the, the, the best ways to go about it. Yes, I agree totally with that. And, and the pattern is much the same in my field as well. Um, having more women historians in the field has meant that they are uh, especially prompted to ask those questions about where are the records by women? Where are the records about women? How can we put those things together? Um, reading sources against the grain. Um, I suspect in my field, we have more source material in some ways, but um, the practice of reading for what isn't there as well as what is 
um, and a whole body of scholarship that other historians have generated about women in the Reformation, in the Renaissance, um, looking at the way women wrote about intellectual life as well as the way men wrote about intellectual life, and what they sometimes said about what women should and should or should not be able to do in intellectual life is a way of you know, prompting some of those questions. Um, I think there's been a, a lot of emphasis on um, saying, you know, this is, these were the standard expectations, but here's an example of someone who pushed back or who did something different. And I also think we strike a balance between looking at outstanding individuals, you know, women who sort of women were these um, heroic figures who did extraordinary things, but also keeping in mind the experience of many ordinary women who did not leave voices of their own, traces of their own. And for that, um, in much the way that Kristen uh, mentioned for antiquity, um, the, the interest in material culture, I think, has been important. I mean, scholars in my field have been looking at things like tapestries and embroidery as evidence of women's work and women's artistic talents in ways that I don't think 50 years ago historians would have said. And so sometimes, although I'm very much a document text-based historian, that is definitely my comfort zone when it comes to sources, but I'm aware of the fact, and I like to introduce students to the fact that images and material culture elements, um, objects of everyday life can also give us insight into what ordinary people did and how they lived and what things they used in ways that a text may not. A text may be limited. It can be offset by using some of those other materials. And I think to add on to that of how we incorporate some of this into the text is, um, I try to strike a balance when there are sort of notable women, queens, and um, uh, you know, very wealthy nobility women. Um, there is quite a bit more evidence usually um, regarding these more extraordinary or upper class or royalty, something like this. Um, but I do kind of introduce my students. You know, look, you, I like how Diane said, read against the grain or in between the lines. Um, what what can we glean from these documents about the, the normal women's experience? And so a lot of that comes for me um, when I'm teaching is through some of the primary source documents that we've incorporated um, to show, uh, you know, even though this is about a war, um, it does kind of mention, oh, the wife gets upset when they're off to war and what does that tell us and um, things like this. So a lot of the way that I help my students understand uh, the experience of women in the past is through reading the the primary source material, the the primary documents that we have. I think that's fantastic responses. You know, not everyone was a Hypatia or a Hatshepsut, but I <laughs> but I I think the vast majority of humans were living those ordinary everyday lives, and I'm curious about them as well. So mm -hmm. I love that we're doing this work now in these. Um, really different ways that we did it in the past to uncover what it was like for them. So thank you both for that answer. Yeah. Um, I think the, the last big question I have in regards to um, your research is, so your title spans <laughs> this three millennia worth of time, people events from ancient Mesopotamia to the European encounters and expansion in the Americas. How do you decide who and what to include? That's a great, <laughs> difficult question. 
Um, there is so much. And honestly, that's one of the drawbacks of a survey course is because you kind of have to sacrifice any depth of knowledge with breadth of knowledge. And so we kind of barely scratch the surface, but kind of introduce these are a whole <laughs> variety of different topics that um, influence and are incorporated into Western civilization. Um, but I did struggle with that. And I remember when we were writing the publication, kind of laboring over, oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, it's more of weeding out what you don't want and not getting too much and not getting too much detail because, you again, you there's so much to cover. And then I also kind of ran up against the problem of I don't want to just regurgitate in the textbook what I say in lecture. And, and since I had already had my lectures that I'd been kind of, you know, have had prepared for some time, I didn't want to just repeat what I say in class in the book. Um, and so I was trying my best to sort of highlight some of the things and go into a bit more depth of things I don't go into depth about in lecture. Um, and then also having a co-author where there's, you know, a, a sort of dance of, of, um, of trying to have a coherent uh, sort of methodology across my sections and Diane's sections. So it, it, that part was... I, arguably perhaps the trickiest part of this whole process. And I think I kind of, uh, I don't know if I have a real great pithy response to explain how I, how I chose, but a lot of it was sort of standard across many textbooks that I had read. You know, these are some of the highlights that sort of the discipline seems to agree are important. Uh, and then I would make sure at, at every turn to incorporate women's voices or the marginalized ones. I, I, I tried my best to kind of keep a, a bit of an emphasis on that. I don't know, Diane, if you have perhaps a better <laughs> explanation than I, I do. No, no. That is a struggle really. we have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you highlighted exactly the points that are a struggle, I think, for anyone who writes a textbook for a survey class, because the, you know, it's a very broad canvas, and it's great in some ways to have such a broad amount of time to teach about, but you can't cover everything, and you certainly can't cover everything in equal detail. So it's always about deciding where do you put individual examples, where do you put more general information, it's not just what gets in and what gets left out, but how much time, attention, and in the context of the book, how much space do you devote to explaining different things? One thing I remember early on when we started working on this, Kristen and I went, I think we went for coffee and we talked about how we approached the teaching of our classes. And I remember thinking that this would probably work out really well because it seemed to me that we had similar emphases and similar approaches. I did not say Julius Caesar, well, we can skip him. Um, she did not say Leonardo da Vinci, who was that? Um, and, and of course, neither one of us said, oh, well, you know, religion, we can kind of fluff that off. And women, yeah, well, you know, a mention here or there will be sufficient. So I think we had a similar approach to trying to identify the things that we wanted to emphasize as opposed to the things that we would provide less information about. With the proviso, as Kristen said, you know, you can always go into class and tell your students, I'm relying on you to read what the textbook says about X. What I'm going to talk about today is this. And there's always ways to build connections between those. We have events and people in our textbook who are controversial. And sometimes we can refer to them and describe them and analyze them in the book. 
but in class, we can talk about controversies, different interpretations, changing interpretations of events, of developments of people. And so that's a way to keep you know, what happens in the classroom connected to what the textbook says, but also different from it. And then the last thing I would say about that is about, you know, the span and, and what to leave in and what to leave out. Um, I, I think our fields are always changing. There are always new ways to adjust that. It may not be possible to adjust the book on a dime, but you can always adjust your lectures to accommodate things that have emerged, topics that may be of great interest to students one year, whereas they weren't the year before. Um, and I think a, an example of this, of course, is our textbook deals with the Black Death, the bubonic plague of, of the medieval period, which comes across, I think, very different to students who've been through a pandemic. Mm -hmm. You can talk about the impact of contagion, epidemic disease, you know, before the pandemic and after the pandemic, but what you say and how students react to it is likely to be very different because of something that has changed completely outside our book. So I think there's always an, a, an ongoing process of deciding how much time to spend on one thing, what to talk about in class and what to tell students. I'm relying on you to read this in, in the book because that's where that information is. Teaching the Black Death has, has changed mm -hmm. dramatically for me over the last mm -hmm. couple semesters. Um, I, it definitely hits home with the students. One of the other things that I was thinking while you were speaking, Diane, was there's also some pretty uh, uniform themes across history, things such as power and politics, and what's the nature of authority, and how, you know, how do you gain and keep authority, and um, those sort of things are actually quite similar between the ancient world and, and even perhaps the modern world, um, and also religion is a theme that we can see and kind of compare across different cultures, the experience of women, and so and technology, the development of technology, things like this that I think, again, when Diane and I kind of chatted about it in the earlier stages of, of this project is that we, we both kind of talked about these similar sorts of things, and so I think mm -hmm. I was writing my side of the thing, of the, of the textbook, then, um, I was trying to make sure that I'm incorporating, you know, uh, power and religion and authority, things that like that, that we both um, tended to highlight throughout our, our teaching. Agreed, very much so. <laughs> and those are also the kinds of themes and topics that they carry over among lots of textbooks. They carry over from our textbook across the span of it. And they also bridge to what we do in class and what we're expecting students to read in the textbook and in the primary sources. So they are ways of providing um, coherence and kind of a framework for those individual choices about, you know, how much do we say about France versus about England? How much do we say about this individual versus this individual? And so there, there are ways I think where we can track and hopefully our students and readers can track across the textbook things that they would expect to read about political power and, and who gets it and how do you keep it, the position of women, social hierarchies, who has what status in society, how are societies organized, what are the ideals of social organization as opposed to the realities of it. Um, and these are the kinds of things that we found that I think we were already approaching in a similar way. Um, and then we, and so I think we tried to incorporate that into the book as well. Yeah, I love that approach to sort of disseminating the information between your book and lectures. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I was just I thought kind of agreeing with the, the fluidity there. 
And it kind of makes me wonder too, how much we have our written records, how much was happening in the lectures in antiquity that we don't have access to because it wasn't <laughs> written down or even the lectures during the, the French Reformation, what don't we have access to? So it's just a little <laughs> sorrow and grief for maybe what's lost there. But they say maybe one to three percent of all written material from antiquity has survived, which wow. is not a lot. <laughs> no, that's so sad. That's I know. Sad. Yeah. I, <laughs> But there's still about that so regularly. much that we can learn from what we have too. Right. So mm -hmm. um, I think the next session was really going into, and I think you touched on it kind mm -hmm. of with that initial contact with Michelle Smith back in 2014 is what inspired you to actually take that step mm -hmm. and write this material together? Or if Michelle Smith had a really good sales email, <laughs> um, I'd like to know so I can pass that to Verbatim, the sales please. Team. Yeah. <laughs> I can forward you her email. <laughs> I well, I think um, I mean I think Kristen actually mentioned this, which is um, teaching with other people's textbooks always meant for me figuring out how can I align with what. The decisions made by other authors about what to include, what to leave out, how much space, how much time to include on things where maybe there was more than I wanted on one thing and less than I wanted on another. I remember I struggled especially with um, the medieval period because I, I wanted to be able to teach in class about the Latin West, uh, the Byzantine Empire, and Islamic civilization separately as individual examples of cultural cultures and societies so that students would understand kind of the main features of each and then bring them together for the crusades and i i didn't i found that a struggle with the textbook i was using at the time because the textbook treated it chronologically and so it broke up the period in chronological chunks with each of the three making an appearance in each chapter and so i was in a sense fighting the textbook and one thing I thought of when I started um, thinking about Michelle's uh, invitation mm -hmm. to consider doing this project was, gosh, I could maybe write those chapters the way I would want to teach them and not have to have a whole guide to reading the other textbook, these pages this week, these pages this week. So that was one of the things that inspired me. By golly, I can make the textbook align with the way that I want to present the material, the order in which I want to present material, as opposed to trying to adjust to other people's decisions. Yeah. And I found that none of the books that I was using were satisfactory. So I felt like I was changing and I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this book this time. And now I'm going to try this other book. And so I just never really felt satisfied and then I felt I was having to chop up the textbook and and have them go back and read this thing because it was more chronological instead of I mean our book is chronological but it's also thematic um and and more even maybe geographical kind of gets in there it's not strictly chronological which I feel like gets gets problematic because then you have sort of this like diachronic or diachronic sort of thing where you're going back and forth back and forth instead of you know, maybe just going back in time a few times to to look at things more uniformly. Um, and so, yeah, I felt I love how Diane says it, fighting the textbook where it's it should be this tool to help me instead of me battling against it constantly. So, yeah, that was a huge impetus for me as well of just having it where I, I'm intimately familiar with it, which has been a, a very helpful 
you know, it makes it easier to teach from it when you, you know, you know it back to front as we do. And also, yeah, making sure that it highlights the things that I want in the, the kind of time and quantity that I want so that I can emphasize the things that I think are important more in lecture or that sort of thing. So it just makes it a lot more uh, an ease of, of teaching a class that is so you know, so long um, of a time and so much material to cover that that it's all that's already an issue. And so having it kind of more suited to our own needs has been, yeah, very helpful. And I also think it's been helpful because of um, what it does for our students. Um, they're not constantly engaged, willingly or not, with our battle with our textbook when it's not one that we have really had a lot of um, control over. And we're able to, students can see connections between the textbook and the lecture material very directly, also between paper topics, between primary source readings and things we talk about in lecture, discussion questions that we give them, things we ask them to talk about and think about and write about for papers or for essay exams. And I think it, it's also kind of a, a pragmatic decision. You know, one of the reasons I felt the way I did about the way I wanted to present the Byzantine Empire, Islamic civilization, and the Latin West is because they're, you know, following them chronologically, I think undercuts one of the things I really wanted, which was for students to have some basic sense. When someone says the Byzantine Empire, what is that? What are its major features? Where does it fit chronologically? What are some of the things that made it distinctive? And a textbook that takes a chronological approach spreads that out. And I think it undercuts the idea of giving students, admittedly, a basic, a, a sort of a set of information that is pragmatic and limited, but then you know, tell them if you want to read more about this, there are lots of books, there are lots of sources, there may be other courses you can take, you can find out more about it, but I'm not constantly trying to find a way to communicate to them without the help of my textbook as my, my, my combatant instead of my ally. Here's a basic set of things that you need to know, important people, important events, important features that make this particular chunk of Western civilization's history um, significant and distinctive. Yeah. And I, I think that too is how I kind of approach Western Civ is because a, a very, I would even say the vast majority of students who take it, take it for a, a one option of many as a required university credit. Um, and so we have biomedical engineering students and, you know, business majors and very few, well, some history majors as well, but um, it seems so tangential to what they are used to and the types of uh, learning that they normally do. Um, and so uh, that I feel like is kind of an uphill battle oftentimes to keep students who probably have never really enjoyed a history class engaged. And so I I find that sometimes my job for these survey courses is to introduce them in a co these various topics over time in a more coherent sort of foundational way instead of again chopping things up and it I feel like that's already there's already so much information that they're trying to kind of get in this cohesive sort of you know put it in little boxes in their brain or however that works um having it more uh, thematic I think helps them get at least a foundational knowledge of that. Oh, then I am interested in the Byzantine empire or what have you. And maybe I will read a book on this. Um, I, I wanna make it easier to sort of 
um, consume all of this various information over a great vast period of time so that, you know, that they're not put off by history completely, um, mm -hmm. that it is more of, let's introduce you to these topics so you can find out what you're interested and in, hopefully learn more. So I, I, I hope that our textbook does that a bit better than some of the other ones that I had read that do chop it up a bit more. And when the, it's, it's so much information, it's harder when you get it piecemeal as opposed to mm -hmm. more, um, more bigger chunks, I guess. I think that might be easier for students um, yeah. to in incorporate that information. Yeah, I, I very much agree with what Kristen said. It, this is in many respects, this survey course that we teach, for many of the students who take it, this is probably the first, the last, and the only college level <laughs> history course they will take. This is it. And so this yeah. is our shot to give mm -hmm. them a sense of how what it means to be a historian, you know, what historians do, how we approach our discipline. In this case, it's about Western civilization, but it could be about other things. And so I think that's why we pay attention to the big themes we want to introduce and trace through the course and through the book. The sources we want students to, um, to be exposed to, um, situations like asking, so what was the position of women, pick a time period, um, because this is our one shot to um, communicate to some of these students what the study of history, at least at the college level, is all about. For many of them, up until that point, it's been nothing but a list of dates. And, um, and many of them come in as, shall we say, a skeptical audience. They're not, they're not at all convinced that they're going to like this course. They're taking it for a requirement. So this is our chance to kind of push back against that a little bit with the teaching materials we have, as well as with the way we teach them. The last thing I'll say about it too is one of the issues I was running up against with other textbooks that I had been using is sometimes you could also require students to buy a supplemental um, primary source reader, but there was never, it was never one. I guess you could get package ones and things like this, but then again, it was like, this is not the primary source I want my students reading. This is, you know, now I have to think of a whole other approach to this primary source that's now in the text that I made them buy. So I feel, you know, mm -hmm. that I have to engage with this material that I hadn't really planned on, or it, it's, it's not exactly what I wanted. You didn't um, pick and it. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so now the primary source material, again, I feel like it's, it's reinforcing some of the major points that we had had tried to flush out throughout the chapter. Um, and so the the primary source material for me has been just a game changer in, in the ease in which I'm assigning papers, which are based on those primary sources. And because there's um, quite a few different ones per chapter, I can kind of switch it up every semester. So it's not, I don't feel like I'm reading the same paper over and over. Um, uh, so yeah, I think the primary material also has been, um, was a, a big drive for me to want to publish it. And then now the ease of, of having exactly what I want um, has been really helpful. Yeah, I'd imagine for, you know, a subject that students kind of confused about maybe already, you know, having the course itself be confusing because of jumping around and choosing different things and, oh, read this chapter, now read this chapter, you know, making all of that coherent, more coherent and consistent probably gets them a little bit more interested, or at least, yeah, like you said, like puts it in the boxes in their brain, they can organize it in a more effect effective manner. And I think too, that with both of you using now the same book that you've 
worked on together, your courses, the sections that you teach are probably more aligned now and consistent across the sections and students are getting more of the same course than maybe they got with you both using either different books or different parts of different books. So just more consistent yeah. all together, all around. Yeah. 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 And that is one of the gripes that I hear from my students in the surveys is just like, oh my goodness, there's just so much information, you know, what are we responsible for? And so to have, you know, the themes to highlight and, and that sort of thing, I think does uh, kind of um, hyper focuses them on the things that I, I think are important that I would like for them to, to sort of remember and, and understand. Yeah, they don't get caught in the crossfire between you know, trying to teach what you want to teach, let's say in the classroom versus what you are um, and having them read and requiring them to be responsible for in some fashion in the textbook that is not the way, it's, it doesn't emphasize things, it doesn't necessarily highlight the things you want. And so I, I think when, when I think of myself as, you know, fighting the textbook or fighting a textbook, the students kind of get caught in the crossfire. And this way that's avoided because the textbook very much reflects the things that we want to emphasize in the class itself. As we come up on the end here, we do have a little segment we call You're Wrong, <laughs> which is just your opportunity to kind of enlighten us about some, um, like the, the biggest misconception in either your course or the field of history in general. That's you know, perpetuated that people assume this about history that you want to kind of say, set straight and say, you're wrong. <laughs> this is your, your rant. This chance. is your chance to rant. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's um, just so many. Have, I'm trying to, I know you can have time. To... <laughs> I'm really sorry. I, I delayed our starting on this. Venting here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you could pick, oh, you could pick one. And I mean, you could both do some rant about something different if you want to. <laughs> but one of the ones that I kind of get on my soapbox about with my students um, is about Christopher Columbus, because I remember as a kid in school learning this very whitewashed uh, kind of um, you know, what a great guy discovering America and, you know, yay. Uh, the world yeah. used to be flat before Christopher Columbus or some nonsense like this. Um, uh, and so that's one of the ones that I tend to set the story straight with my students that um, one, the world there's probably more people on the planet today that believe the world is flat than in the days of Christopher Columbus, which is a whole other <laughs> a whole, a whole rant. Yes, exactly. Um, but also just on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of the things that I, I tend to emphasize in my classes is, you know, just because these people thought this was valuable information or the preconceptions that we have about colonialism and imperialism that, you know, we need to frame those ideas in a more modern lens, try not to judge people by our own standards of the past, but also the way we deal with the past today uh, should reflect our moral standards of today. And so not glorify Columbus as this amazing guy because he did you know, enslave and murder and pillage and, um, you know, set a trajectory in motion that destroyed many great cultures. And so 
rather than kind of celebrating him as this great, you know, European, you know, I don't even know, a great guy, <laughs> um, is, is kind of bring it down a notch and look at the reality of look, you know, at, at maybe it wasn't necessarily his intention to destroy all of the native populations with disease and this sort of thing. But, um, but these are consequences and we shouldn't um, necessarily glorify people in the past um, for some of the things that they might have thought was okay, but now, you know, is this is not okay. Um, I don't know. That's one of mine is Columbus, but I, I, I'll just pick the one. <laughs> oh, I'm here for it. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people today would agree with you on that too. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily. Yeah. But still my students, I ask you, did you guys learn that Columbus mm -hmm. discovered that the world was round and I still see some hands and that's like, yeah. oh goodness sakes, what are we? <laughs> and it's like an, it's an elementary school thing too. I feel like. Yeah. They start us early oh, on the <laughs> propaganda, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I can appreciate that because you don't want to talk about, you know, right. for age appropriate history for children that's is true. also, yeah, but you don't need to invent <laughs> misinformation either right. so it's a yeah yeah <laughs> Diane I know Diane yeah. do you have <laughs> yeah, so I, I think no I think um and since I'm the person who wrote the section about Columbus and, and I know <laughs> no Columbus is the section of the course where where we're in you know my wheelhouse so to speak so I totally understand and agree with the importance of getting across to students at that point in the class um, some, I guess, some larger issues. And, and, and your example of Columbus, Kristen, highlights one of mine, which is, I think one of the things that I want students to understand is that history is complicated. It is complex. It is um, difficult. Um, some of my students clearly think this is going to be an easy class because it's a 100 level history class and they're senior engineering majors, right? How hard can it be? <laughs> After we've gotten week two and they've been disabused of that, misconception um, <laughs> and they realized no no reading writing thinking are called for at all times in this class um, but I, I think um, I guess one of my events is there's a tendency for people to want to see history as a matter of heroes and villains and um, how do we identify turning points in history um, how do we identify the things that are important to know in history as opposed to the stuff that isn't important to know and so, like Kristen said, when I teach about Columbus, I tend to point out the fact that from a European perspective, what he did looked like a discovery. From the perspective of the people who were already in the places that he discovered, the, his actions, um, everything that he did has a very different viewpoint. It looks very different. And it looks, in fact, quite negative in many respects. So the lesson I want students to learn about the study of history is that even in this introductory level broad survey class where we are almost constantly hop skipping and jumping across the major people and the major events, one thing to learn from this is that history is complex. That lesson you learned about Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, <laughs> now that might have been fine in elementary school, but this is college and at the college level, I want students to understand that history is not simple. It's never simple, never been simple. And one of the ways that we should embrace that complexity is by challenging, you know, what did Columbus really do? Who has decided that what he did was good or that what he did was bad? It, taking on the responsibility of making those judgments means you have to look at things from more than one point of view. You have to look at them from present as well as perspectives from the past. 
how people saw Columbus in his day is different than the way we see him today. We should be able to talk about that. Students should be able to write about that in a civil and respectful way and, and understand that just because people, your, your elementary school teacher taught you that Columbus was great, you can disagree with that person now. Um, I'm not suggesting you call them up and rant about how wrong they were, but you know, <laughs> but you know, we can have discussions about these different perspectives and different views of historical events and historical people and, and kind of not fall into the trap of saying, well, this person was a hero, this person was a villain, this person was great, this person wasn't. The truth is usually, the historical truth is usually much more complicated than that. And so if there's one thing I want students to take away from our class and from reading our textbook as part of that, it's to kind of understand and be willing to embrace that complexity as opposed to wanting it to be simple, wanting to be able to divide things into black and white. You know, if we're going to change our judgments about someone like Columbus, which we definitely should do, <laughs> you know, let's have good reasons for it. Let's base it on looking at lots of different sources and lots of different perspectives rather than just saying, well, I learned in elementary school, Columbus was a hero. Uh, you know, I'm going to stick my fingers in my ears when my college professors tell me something different. Mm -hmm. I love so that. It's not, it's not exactly, you know, here's where you're wrong, but it's more mm -hmm. like, here's where I think we can do better. Yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. And I love the way you put that, Diane. That was great. <laughs> mm -hmm. That has such broader implications too, just for people's mindset as they go about their lives. You know, that not everything is black and white. Everything's more complex than that. Thank you so much, Diane and Kristen, for joining us on today's episode. You can really feel the passion, not only for your subject matter, but for your pedagogy and the structure of your course and lectures. Both of you have similar teaching styles, which has allowed you to work well together in the development of your digital course materials, too. As we close this episode, I am left with the concept that history is this living thing. Kristen and Diane talk about how we can uncover different pieces while interpreting old manuals and scripts and materials in different ways. We also mourn to some of the pieces that are lost to us from time. The last thing I'm left with is how interesting that what resonates from the past is due to the circumstances in the present. When Kristen talks about the Black Death and how it affects students who lived through COVID, it makes us wonder about the next generation. What's happening in our time that they will see reflected in their own present? Can I Get a Retake is hosted by Michelle Manneman and Michaela Albee. The show is edited by Maggie Christensen. Artwork for the podcast was designed by Michelle Manneman. Our intro and outro music was created by Coma Media. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe, share, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. To join the conversation, you can find us on Instagram at Can I Get a Retake. For show notes and episode transcripts, visit greatriverlearning.com slash podcast. I think that's really fascinating and makes me want to read their book.
I mean, I have access. I can log in and read it anytime. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to immediately <laughs> jump in and read the section on the Crusades because that is my jam. That's a huge interest of mine personally. And I, I agree. You read some of the books and the way you are introduced to these three major powers, it doesn't, you, you don't feel the full connection between them and why events led up to what they did. So I know what I'm doing the rest of this afternoon. <laughs> 